0: Orbital Gardens, this is Mission Control. We are confirming acquisition of your signal. You are live in 5432. Hello, and welcome to episode 54 of Gardeners of the Galaxy, the podcast for all of the sentient beings in the universe who have a passion for plants. I'm Emma the Space Gardener, and I will be your host as we explore gardening on Earth and beyond. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Dr. Emily Sessa, director of the William and Linda Steer Herbarium at the New York Botanical Garden. Now, Emily's job means she spends her days surrounded by plant specimens, and that's cool enough in its own right. But recently, she's been working on some NASA-funded research that could tell us a lot about the history of life on planet Earth, but also give us some hints about how to live well on other planets. We'll be hearing from Emily in just a second, but first I would like to say a very big thank you to all my Gardens of the Galaxy boosters. Every spaceship needs fuel to stay in orbit, and Gardeners of the Galaxy is no exception. My rocket boosters support the show financially, and there are several ways to do that. Just as important are my signal boosters, who help me expand the Gardeners of the Galaxy community by sharing episodes on social media or leaving reviews in their podcast apps. You can find out more about becoming a booster by visiting theunconventionalgardener.com forward slash boosters. I should just mention that on the day I spoke with Emily, someone was mowing the lawns at the New York Botanic Garden and you'll be able to hear that intermittently on the recording. So we'll pretend we're on the Starship Enterprise and the torque sensors are a few microns out of alignment and Geordie LaForge will be along directly to sort them out. Emily, welcome to Gardeners of the Galaxy. It's great to have you on the show today.
1: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. It's wonderful to talk with you.
0: (laughs) It's going to be a great show because your research is absolutely fascinating. So can you introduce yourself and tell us what your job is, please?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I am the director of the William and Linda Steer Herbarium at the New York Botanical Garden. Uh, so we're one of the largest herbaria in the world, and a herbarium is a it's a type of biological collection that is focused on plants. And so we are the keepers of dried, preserved plant specimens that are mostly plants that are mounted on paper, but we also have fungi, we have lichens that are growing on rocks, we have algae, we've got all kinds of things. So we've about 7.8 million specimens. And yeah, I, I have the honor and the privilege of being the director.
0: Oh, fantastic. I love Herberia. They have yeah. so many sort of treasures hidden in cupboards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People might think though, I mean, this is a, a historical record of plants. What use is that in the modern world?
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So, oh, there are so many uses. So Herbaria globally, and herbaria like ours at the New York Botanical Garden, have been documenting the world's flora, so plants, and, you know, anything that was historically sort of, we didn't really know what it was, which is why we have things like fungi and lichens and and those sorts of organisms, even though we know that they're not plants and they're not actually particularly closely related to plants, but these, these collections have been the repository of our information about these organisms for hundreds of years. So herbaria started in around the 1600s. And so the oldest herbarium collections around the world will be about 400 years old. And so if you think about what that means, it means that we have this record preserving the world's flora uh, for hundreds of years and over the entire world or you know anywhere that collections have been made. Uh, and so that is a historical record, as you pointed out, but we can use it to do, ask a lot of questions that are very... Um, relevant in the world we live in today. So obviously, of course, you might first think about climate change. And so if we want to know about how the ranges of plants and other organisms are changing today, the only way to know that is to look at where they've been in the past. And the only place to find that information is herbarium collections and other types of biological collections. So we can, at a very basic level, make maps of where specimens are located uh, and see how those uh, have been changing, how those ranges have been changing over time. But the physical collections themselves are also useful in lots and lots of interesting ways, including in ways that, of course, people were not thinking about 200, 300 years ago when they were making these collections. So obviously back then they were not thinking about DNA. They had no idea that DNA existed. And yet today, one of the really major ways that herbarium specimens are used is that typically we will allow researchers to sample from the specimens in order to extract DNA and build phylogenies or sequence genomes or whatever it is that they're interested in doing. So that's sort of like the best poster child for why those physical collections are important, right? Because even if we are able to digitize and image these specimens, we didn't know about DNA a few hundred years ago, who knows what we will develop in the future. Um, so uh, specimens can also be used to look at things like stomatal densities. So stomata are the pores on the undersides, mostly the undersides of leaves that are used for gas exchange and the density. So the number of stomata per you know square centimeter or whatever uh, can be linked to things like air quality, CO2 levels. Different uh, molecules in the leaves themselves may change with pollution, with air quality, with CO2 levels. Uh, so there are lots of sorts of analyses that you can do if you destructively sample the leaves or the tissues that you can you can use to figure out things about the climate and about you know the sort of habitat that these these organisms were living in. That obviously will be relevant for lots of different questions we might want to ask today.
0: Yeah. And people are still adding to the collections, aren't they? People are still collecting plants for herbaria.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that that's a really good, um, that's a really good point. Thank you for mentioning that. Because I think people often look at herbaria and look at biological collections in general and think that they're just historical, that they're just this thing that like we collected over the last few hundred years and we're keeping them now like just for the sake of maintaining history. But this is the work of documenting the world's flora and fauna is ongoing, right? Like we know that we are changing the planet right now. We know that the ranges of plants and animals are changing right now and that other sorts of physical and morphological and physiological changes are taking place in these organisms in their physical tissues right now. The only way that people, scientists 50 years from now, 100 years from now are going to be able to analyze those changes in the way that we can now with a historical perspective is if we continue that collecting work. So it's vitally important, and we are still adding several tens of thousands of new specimens to our herbarium in New York every year from work going on around the world by our scientists and their collaborators and their colleagues, and that's incredibly important. So it is very much still a vital living science, and the work of documenting the world's plants is, it's never ending, truly.
0: (laughs) you were talking there about seeing how things have changed over the course of history. And one of the things that you're here to talk about today is that you received a grant from NASA to study what happened to plants in the aftermath of one particularly eventful day on planet Mm -hmm. Earth. So can you give us a background to your project, set the scene, so to speak?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my personal research interest is ferns. So these are the plants that I am the most passionate about. They are They're beautiful, let's just start there. They're beautiful uh, and they're fascinating for a number of reasons. Ferns are, they're different from other plants in a lot of ways. They tend to have really enormous genomes. They tend to be able to do things like photosynthesize in very low light conditions, like lower light conditions than other plants, like angiosperms, flowering plants. So they're just, they're interesting in a lot of ways and they're sort of understudied in a lot of ways. They often don't have a lot of economic importance. I mean, you know, people like to use ferns in horticulture, but You know, they're not like, it's not like corn, maize, or rice, right? So they they often get ignored because they don't have a lot of economic importance. And a really great example of the way that ferns have sort of been kind of appreciated, but then ignored in in a really strange way is this phenomenon called the fern spore spike. So exactly what you just mentioned, thinking about mass extinction. So a really bad day in the history of planet Earth occurred about 65 million years ago. So this is when an asteroid impacted what is now Chicxulub, Mexico, uh, left an enormous crater and sort of wrought devastation on the planet, right? So there would have been an enormous impact leading to fires, earthquakes, um, that would have spread outward from that impact points as sort of impacting ultimately the entire planet, all the, the ash and soot that would have been knocked up into the atmosphere, both from the impact event, sort of throwing particulate matter into the atmosphere, but then from the fires would have created basically nuclear winter conditions um, that would have lasted, you know, hundreds to thousands of years. And of course, as we know, lots of things went extinct, right? So most famously, all of the non-avian dinosaurs went extinct and that was kind of what's now thought to have like allowed mammals to, you know, become really flourish in the aftermath of that. But the flora, the plant matter also like went extinct. So lots and lots of diversity was lost and the planet was kind of wiped bare. I mean, imagine a wildfire far greater than the scale of the wildfires that we are experiencing now that would have engulfed like entire continents. That's sort of the, the scene that you can try to get yourself to imagine. And so when you look at the pollen record from around this time, before the extinction event, there's obviously a rich pollen record. There were intact, fully functional vegetative communities. And then it sort of gets wiped clean, right? So the, the you can actually look in the fossil record, and you can of course you can there's like an ash layer where you can see that's the K-P-G boundary, so the boundary between the Cretaceous and the Paleogene. And then immediately above that boundary, the first thing that comes back in the pollen and spore record are ferns, okay. and it's it's literally called the fern spore spike because there is no pollen, and then there's this enormous spike in fern spores. So okay. Just ferns, no no pollen from angiosperms or gymnosperms. And this is so widespread and such a distinct and reliable phenomenon globally that it is actually now a biomarker for the KPG. So it is something that you can actually use to identify when you found the, K- the KPG boundary in the fossil record, which is really remarkable.
0: Yeah.
1: And this has been, it had been um, recognized and, and noted since the 70s, the 1970s. But this is where the the piece about ferns sort of being ignored comes in. Nobody ever asked why. (laughs) Why did ferns do this? What was it about them that made them able to be the first plants to recover in what we can imagine was still an incredibly inhospitable and harsh environment in these first few, you know, hundreds or thousands of years after this extinction event and wildfires, earthquakes and all this stuff that went on. So why? What was it about ferns? And that's really the question that's at the heart of this this proposal that we submitted to NASA and amazingly had funded <laughs> uh, and that we've been studying since then.
0: OK. And so, I mean, how do you go about this? I mean, one of the first things you did, you actually went out and you did some fieldwork, didn't you, you and your team?
1: Yeah, we did do some field work. So we assembled a team of researchers that I'm, I'm quite proud of. So there are five uh, principal investigators on this grant. All women which is pretty cool it's been um, the first experience in my career to have an all-women team uh, at the level of the pis so there are three paleobotanists and then two of us who are sort of more modern fern physiology folks and so on the paleobotany side we have done some field work and so the goal of that is to try to better characterize the ferns that were actually involved in the spike Um, And then also to do community reassembly analyses to try to figure out what those communities were looking like immediately before and immediately after when, when plants started to come back. So that was sort of like there's a paleontological component there. Uh, and some field work, which was fun (laughs) because as one of the modern fern people, it's not often that I get to like go out in the field and look for for fossils. So we did that. Of course, this grant, as you know, many people had this experience that its funding began in summer of 2020. Uh, So it was about a year before we could get started. But then in summer of 2021, we were able to go out in the field uh, and do this field work uh, and look look for fossils. And you can actually put your finger on the KPG boundary. And it's one of the very few times that you can actually go out and uh you know put your finger on a day in the history yeah. life on earth
0: yeah fantastic okay so the the next part is maybe going to make some of these gardeners that are listening wince a bit because we hate killing plants and yeah, doing so, so accidentally it, it's inevitable but you and your team set about creating a mass extinction event so how did you go about that
1: yeah that's exactly what we did so we really wanted to know like Can we sort of recreate the conditions that these plants would have been living in post-mass extinction and try to figure out how they're surviving? Like, what is it that they're doing? And so we did recreate a mass extinction, uh, both in some greenhouses and in some growth chambers. Uh, And it's actually not as difficult as it sounds to do this. Basically, it's lower temperature, so it was quite quite cold, and there actually is some um, uncertainty around what the temperature, like would it have been warmer because of greenhouse conditions? Yeah. Would it have been colder because it was like dark, you know, clouds darkening the sky? So we opted to go with colder, so we set the temperature a little bit lower. You create darkness, which is easy to do with either shade cloth or by just lowering the light levels in a growth chamber you pump up the CO2, because that is absolutely something that would have would have happened. So increased CO2 levels because of that sort of global warming effect. Uh, And then we watered the plants with kind of dilute sulfuric acid solution in order to try to mimic acid rain, because we know that that would have been another thing uh, that they would have been experiencing. So that's all there is to it. (laughs) Not that complicated to recreate a mass extinction in your own backyard, as it were. But even that didn't reliably kill everything, did it? No, it didn't. And surprisingly, yeah, what we found, so there were there were sort of two phases to this experiment. And I mentioned that there was both a growth chamber and a greenhouse. And so the reason for that is, your listeners may be aware that ferns, like all plants, have what's called an alternation of generations in their life cycle. So I'm not going to get like too much into this because I don't want people to turn it off. This is usually where like (laughs) undergraduates' least favorite part of plant biology is learning about life cycles. But (laughs) all plants kind of go back and forth. They cycle back and forth between A stage of the life cycle that is the big leafy green thing that we're used to seeing and thinking about when we think about vascular plants, like, you know, flowering plants, ferns, that big leafy green thing. That's the sporophyte. But there's another stage of the life cycle that's called the gametophyte that is very much smaller in angiosperms and gymnosperms. It's reduced to just a few cells uh, that are within the seed. But ferns, and lycophytes as well, which is another another group, but we're going to focus on ferns here. In ferns, the gametophyte is actually a very tiny but green photosynthetic organism. It has its own nutrition. It has its own ecology. And, in fact, that is the generation of the life cycle or the stage of the life cycle where sex takes place. So it's really important. So what happens in this life cycle is you've got your big sporophyte it makes spores in the ferns, those spores fly off, they land somewhere, they germinate into a gametophyte, this tiny little thing that you are never gonna see unless you actually go looking for it. And then that gametophyte is actually where eggs and sperm are produced, so sex takes place there, and the result is then again the big leafy green sporophyte. So that gametophyte is really, really, really important because if your sporophyte dies, the only way to get it back is for a gametophyte to successfully germinate and grow and for sexual reproduction to take place there. And d- even among fern people, the gametophyte generation often is kind of ignored. Yeah. There are not all that many people in the world who work on gametophytes, despite how incredibly important they are for establishment and reproduction. And so we really wanted to not fall into that trap. Uh, and so mm-hmm the um, greenhouse experiments focused on the sporophyte generation, and then we did a separate set of experiments in a growth chamber focused on gametophytes. And you can grow them easily in a growth chamber because you can just you can on a petri plate, you could have like thousands of spores that would germinate into thousands of gametophytes. So it's they're small scale. They're pretty easy to work with if you can get them to grow. And so this was actually my part of the project was uh, the growth chamber experiments. And so I had some wonderful students, undergraduates and graduate students at the University of Florida, which is where I, I was previously. And they carried out this experiment. So they grew a set of these firms, uh, gametophytes in. Um, control conditions, of course, and then in our what we called the sad conditions, which was the mass extinction green uh, growth chamber. And what we found was that the spores took longer to germinate in the mass extinction conditions, but then they did better. They were actually, they actually seemed to be happier in those conditions. So we had a way of measuring sort of their physiology and, and how kind of productive their photosynthetic processes were. And they actually seem to do better, which was really remarkable.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so the goal of this was just a sort of foundational, like, let's let's just test this, figure out what's going on. And then follow up studies could try to figure out exactly what is happening physiologically, what what exactly is going on. But for the first pass analysis, which is what the, the focus of the proposal was, it does, in fact, seem like species that we looked at they're happier they're doing really well in these conditions which was pretty remarkable and the growth chamber experiments are still they've they've concluded but we've not yet analyzed all of the data because they yeah. just finished a few weeks ago so stay tuned for what the, <laughs> what those uh greenhouse experiments will
0: show. so we've got the the final results to to look forward to in the future from your perspective what do these results tell us that what have you seen should we be growing more ferns? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think it says something about
1: their resilience. So clearly these are resilient organisms. They're able to survive and thrive in really challenging circumstances. And that's something important to think about both for us on the planet now, as we're doing lots of damage. Mm-hmm. Um, so ferns, for example, are also, a num- there are a number of species that can accumulate heavy metals and that already are being used as phytoremediators in places that have been um, polluted by mining activities, for example. So I think that ferns have a lot of sort of untapped capacity because they've been kind of ignored and not really very thoroughly studied. So I think there are probably a lot of situations and ways where we could be using them, but we're not. The genes that are involved in their their resilience and their tolerance for these stressful conditions if we could figure out what those genes are, which would be kind of, that would be a whole additional, you know, whole other sort yeah. of direction for these sorts of studies to go. Yeah. But there, you know, obviously that's of great interest for breeding activities and um, especially thinking about the conditions being dry, acidic, dark, you know, this potentially is the way that parts of our planet might be heading. And so if we could figure out what genes are allowing ferns to do well in those sorts of environments, and maybe those could be things that are introduced into crops or, you know, in, into other natural species to use in reforestation efforts or you know habitat reclamation that could be helpful. And then of course there is the ultimate frontier of thinking about do we go somewhere else other than planet Earth? And this was actually something that we put in the proposal. Uh, I felt a little silly doing it, but you know it's NASA, right? So you gotta you've got to go you have to get, go the whole nine yards and uh-huh. football American football analogy. So if we're ever in a position where we are thinking about terraforming another planet for example choosing the right plants is going to be really important to figure out how to make those efforts be successful and it may be that ferns would be a really great choice because if you think about what it's like on mars it's maybe in some ways not terribly dissimilar from some of the really harsh habitats and environments that these plants would have been successful in 65 million years ago yeah. so maybe ferns should be the first things we send to mars
0: maybe <laughs> <Hopefully>. <laughs> <laughs> okay so you mentioned the you know terraforming another planet But you also said that in your application to NASA, you felt a bit silly mentioning that kind of thing. So have you ever thought about going to space? Are you one of those people?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I would consider it. I have a pretty low risk tolerance, so (laughs) I feel like it was very safe. But I think it would be cool. I could I could see definitely, even like, the, like especially like the low orbit sorts of things, I think would be really fun. So yeah, I would go to
0: space. <laughs> okay, so if we can imagine a future in which you are going to space and perhaps for a bit of a long duration mission and you can take one plant with you in your hand luggage to be your personal pet plant, which plant would you choose and why?
1: Oh, this is a really hard question. <laughs> so I... Th- Part of me wants to go with a really practical answer. So I'm going to cheat and I'm going to go with like a I'm going to give you a practical answer but then like, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants. Absolutely. So my practical answer, I think would probably be t- a tomato plant because I love tomatoes. Yeah. They're healthy, but they're also they're a fruit technically, right? Yeah. So they're sweet, they're delicious, so I think a tomato plant would be a good choice because they're good for you but that you'd get a lot of you get a lot out of a tomato plant. Awesome. But if I were not being practical, if I were going to bring Along, just like a comfort, <laughs> a comfort plant, I would choose a fern, and I would probably choose something like ostrich fern. Um, so that this is Matuchia struthiopteris. It's a it gets enormous. It's beautiful. You could sort of like sit under it and pretend that you were you know in a field with surrounded by beautiful big green leafy ferns so i think i probably would choose something like that a a comfort fern that would give me a lot of (laughs) enjoyment and pleasure maybe not food but
0: is that one of the ones where you can eat the i've forgotten what they're called yeah so you actually ostrich fern you can
1: eat the fiddleheads and in fact it is it's one of the only ferns where it's considered sort of safe to do that yeah so Ferns are, they're packed full of what are called secondary metabolites. So these are molecules, compounds that are kind of offshoots and spinoffs of primary metabolic pathways that get sort of co-opted and modified for all kinds of purposes. And often in ferns, these secondary metabolites are used as defensive compounds. Yeah. So it's actually not great to eat ferns. Yeah. <laughs> Like a lot of them are known to have carcinogens in them, for example. But ostrich fern is one of the ones that uh, you can eat the fiddleheads. And in in like the northeastern U.S. in the springtime, if you find fiddleheads in your local market, um, and I think probably in Europe as well, because it grows there too, chances are the the, um, fiddleheads are going to be from the ostrich fern. So I wouldn't want to make a habit of
0: eating them on my way to space. But (laughs) I wasn't for one moment suggesting that we were going to eat your comfort plant. Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) right that's right (laughs) okay so yes I think I can find some room for you and your ferns in the orbital garden that'll be absolutely fantastic I do love ferns and thank you for coming on the show today Emily and telling us about this fascinating research and I'm sure everybody who's listening will be keeping an eye out for the results going forward and what you get up to next
1: oh thank you so much it's really been a pleasure I love talking about ferns so thank (laughs) you for giving me an opportunity to do
0: so you are most welcome thank you I'll put the links to Emily's webpage and Twitter in the show notes, which you'll find at theunconventionalgardener.com. Thanks again to my boosters for supporting the show, and don't forget that you can sign up to the Gardeners of the Galaxy newsletter for new episode alerts and bonus Astro content. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.
1: Orbital Gardens is mission control. Confirming termination of signal. We've had a message from Mark Watney.
0: Next time someone's near the rover, can they please check under the seat? He thinks he's left his house keys there. Mission control out.